zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing The Unseen, released September 1st, 1981. It was written by Michael L. Grace, based on a story by Grace, Kim Henkel, Nancy Rifkin, and Danny Steinman, with uncredited story from Michael Viner, Directed by Danny Steinman under the pseudonym Peter Foleg, and released by World Northal, who I think we last saw as the distributor for The Children last season. Northal? Northal. What good is using a pseudonym if everybody knows that you used a pseudonym? I don't think people knew for a long time, and then IMDb came along and started outing everybody. God damn internet. The first draft was written by Kim Henkel and Michael Viner, but it was altered so drastically from what they turned in that they are not credited in the final product. But if you'd like to hear that story, it was later adapted into Robert Woodley's novel, Deadly Encounter. The closest I could find to a summary of the book is the blurb on the back cover. She opened the door to fear. The girl, Cam Marshall, blonde, beautiful. She fled New York's crime-haunted streets for a new life in London. There stood Marshall House, her final hope, the legacy she planned to keep, until the maddening music began and her dream house became a nightmare orchestrated by the tenant, Trudy Nottis, a spinster with a talent for terror. She'd waited 28 years for Cam and the moment of her bloody revenge. Nothing to do with this film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can we, can we watch that film? Yeah. I was going to say, you didn't seek out uh, the novel and read the whole thing in the I, last week? No, I was, I was unable to procure it. Also, how often is a book adapted from an unproduced screenplay? It seems crazy, too. A book is adapted from an... Well, I mean, I think that, that that's not unreasonable because... Usually if the book comes after the movie, it's because the movie got made and the book is a novelization. Yeah, but if but if somebody... If, so, if you wrote a script and you liked the story... Right, and, and, you, and you couldn't and then get it they made they as a movie. And didn't actually mm-hmm. produce the movie of that because they changed everything. You're like, but what about my cool story? Yeah. Whatever, I'll just write a book. That makes sense. The film was shot on location in Solvang, California during their annual Danish Days Festival for a budget of $2 million. Producer Anthony B. Unger had made back the budget prior to the film's release with distribution sales to 16 foreign markets. World Northal acquired the domestic rights. Director Steinman was supposedly very unhappy with the final cut of the film, which he said removed most of the major scares from what he shot. He successfully argued to have his name removed from the film, going under the pseudonym Peter Foleg, his second pseudonym after his would-be directorial debut, the 1973 pornographic feature High Rise, in which he is credited as Danny Stone. He didn't even use the same pseudonym? Nope. We open with the sun rising over a city. The camera backs through an open window into an apartment where we hear disturbing male grunting noises and heavy breathing over an insert of a framed photograph of Barbara Bach as this film's protagonist, Jennifer Fast. It appears, based on trophies and sports photos on the shelf, that this is the home of football player Tony Ross. One shelf features a sort of look-alike Heisman trophy beside what looks like a real Emmy. I'm inclined to believe it is real because the name engraved on the base is cropped out. 
This was such an uncomfortable opening. I know. I was yeah. I was like, can we just stop making the sounds for a second until I know what's happening? Because I don't want to hear this. I know. It was several minutes of this grunting before we, like, had any sort of reveal. Right. There's also small clay figurines on one of these shelves. Do you guys recall the last film we covered with a collection of tribal figurines? Night moves? Night moves is correct. But hooray! When the shot gets wider, we see he's working out and not vigorously masturbating, as the creepy score seemed to imply. And also photographs of women in his house. Like, I was just <laughs> like, what is happening? I don't like this. The guy has a nasty scar on his leg, and I think we're meant to assume he has suffered a knee injury and is working out as a part of his recovery, but it looks like he's having a difficult time. The prosthetic, uh, like the scar on his yeah. knee looks terrible. Yeah, it's just paint yeah. on his leg. <laughs> We cut from here to Jennifer in the bathroom packing up her purse to leave on a work trip. They share a knowing look and she leaves angry without saying a word. She also picks up the lightest suitcase ever. Right. Like it, it's like it's full of helium because it yeah. just flies through the air as she swings it. It's like, I guess maybe she's going somewhere else to pack her clothes. Yeah. At the curb outside, she hops into a KNRS-5 station wagon, suggesting that Emmy was for news reporting. Tony crosses their apartment and flips through Jennifer's planner to see that she will spend January 5th and 6th of 1980 in Solvang, California, and he tears out one of the pages because football players can't commit long words like Solvang to memory. We cut right to Solvang's annual Danish Days Festival already underway, and the bell of a sousaphone fills frame, blasting some oompa music. Jennifer's sister, Karen, wanders disappointedly out of the lobby of Solvang's famous Danish Inn, she breaks it to her friends in the news car, Sister Jennifer and co-worker Vicky, that the station must have flubbed their reservations and there's nowhere in town to rent a room because of the festival. They drive out of town in search of the nearest vacancy and park outside the Union Hotel in Los Alamos, California, 23 minutes away. It looks basically the same today and it's available to rent for private parties. Is it? Yeah. Is it a museum? Uh, it's kind of just a location that you rent for events. Mm. So a lot of weddings happen there and stuff like that, but it's very pretty inside. As shitty as we're about to tell you this movie is, it did make me want to plan a trip to Solvang for the next Danish Days <laughs> yeah. Festival. Taking place, as luck would have it, one week from today as this episode posts. Is it? September 16th through the 18th. We're totally going. Yeah. The festival celebrates the 1911 establishment of the city. Its 111th anniversary will be a big one, as the festival has been canceled due to COVID since their 2019 celebration. I want to know if all the people that we pass in the, like authentic uh danish outfits were just people who went to this thing and were dressed like that or if the i'm movie pretty sure put they were there no i think this is the real <laughs> festival that they shot at and they they used basically mostly real extras from from the festival a pov watches through an upstairs window as jennifer is sent to knock on the door of the union hotel eventually the door is answered by ernest keller played by sydney lassick he informs Jennifer that, unfortunately, the hotel is no longer in service and functions primarily as a museum now. He says he's sorry, and she keeps guilt-tripping him until he invites the girls in while he calls around. Between calls, they chat about Ernest's situation. It seems he manages the museum alone, and his wife Virginia doesn't leave their house. I doubt Hans Christian Anderson can get a room tonight. <laughs> uh, it's most unfortunate. God, I really don't know what to do. When Ernest's efforts to locate a room prove fruitless, he apologizes again, and when Jennifer finally takes the hint and leaves, he calls her back with a plan. It seemed like she was fishing for Ernest to just let them stay here at yeah. the former hotel, yeah. since it clearly has rooms, but Ernest is inviting them back to his residence. 
when Jen tells the girls they are wary but grateful. At least we don't have to sleep in the car. Vicky looks a lot like a blonde Karen Allen when she delivers this line directly into camera, so much so that I was sure they must be related somehow, but I couldn't find anything. While they wait outside, Ernest puts in a call to his wife Virginia to inform her of the incoming guests. We only hear his half of the conversation, but she doesn't seem too excited about it. You're not listening to me. If you continue to refuse to listen to me, I will become very cross with you. <laughs> I don't suppose you would want that to happen now. The girls follow Ernest down a dirt road back to his home. The girls are impressed by the home inside and out. Ernest has some trouble rousting his wife and shouts repeatedly for her. Virginia! Virginia, our guests are here. Virginia! Excuse me. I'm sorry. Virginia! Virginia! The house is really cool. It is, like, yeah. The, the outside of the house, it's, I mean, it's just really I think pretty. it's probably two different houses. The exterior doesn't look like it would fit the interior. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah. It's hard to tell. Um, but it is very pretty. But the outside is just really cool looking. But there is something... Like, I honestly had to stop and rewind it because I thought that there was like, oh, there's a creature on the roof because there's just something funky on top of the house. And I'm like, what is that? Oh, I didn't even notice. In another room of the house, a severely depressed Virginia sits listening to a music box. She finally makes an appearance. The room is ready. I hope you'll be comfortable. They thank Virginia for the trouble and she excuses herself back to the kitchen. Ernest says she's not used to guests. Later, in their room, Jen's sister Karen takes the first possible opportunity to mock the poor clinically depressed woman who just prepared a room for her free of charge. I hope you will be comfortable. Excuse me, I have to go and hide now. That's not very nice. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Vicky's not feeling well and asks to stay here, while the sisters return to Solvang to shoot some interviews for their piece. They hear some strange noises from the grate in the floor and quickly forget about it. We see Virginia preparing a meal in the kitchen, and there's another grate in the floor there, so they must have just heard her moving pots and pans around. As she delivers the second course to Ernest, he complains about the first. Super salty. When the girls walk out to head back to town, they weirdly don't mention they're leaving a friend behind. As he continues eating, Ernest hears the water come on upstairs, and he follows the sound. He carries blankets into the girls' room, and we can hear water running in the tub. He crosses the room and puts an eye to the keyhole. Inside, he sees Vicky undressing and climbing naked into the tub. Weirdly, his view through the keyhole changes angles as she moves about the bathroom. <laughs> While he's watching her, a key falls out of his pocket and makes a noise on the ground. She asks who's out there, and he says he's brought extra blankets because the heating doesn't work in this part of the building. Out in the yard, Virginia is hanging up laundry and Ernest surprises her with clothespins attached to his nose and lips. Ta-da! <laughs> she tells him that bringing the girls here was a bad idea and they could find out what's happening. He shouts her into submission until she's crying in her hands and he assures her that he will handle the worrying about these girls. I've always protected us, haven't I? Huh? I, I, I feel like... So it's it's obviously a very weird juxtaposition of yes. this character that he's like very goofy with, you know, these things just stuck on his face and then he like turns on her and yeah. and is very angry and shouts and stuff. Um so it's hard to get a read on him. It's very weird. But I don't understand his motivation for letting them stay at the house. It 
it it seems like it's just genuine like I'm gonna help you guys out. It does it does kind of seem like I, I that. think part of it is like it's three attractive three ladies. I'm ladies, just gonna like, bring them to my it's house. What and, I want. and my wife has to put up with everything I say anyway. Yeah. Okay. He kisses her on the forehead and she continues sobbing. He tells her he's headed back to the hotel museum. Up in their room, Vicky emerges from the bathroom in a silk robe and lays down on one of the guest beds. We see Ernest's car pull off down the driveway. Out in a nearby shed, we see chickens and an axe. Virginia lifts an axe out of a stump to sharpen it, and at the same time, we see someone lifting the grate cover in Vicky's room. And she's sharpening the axe in a very terrible way. Oh, yeah. Like it's pointing just like, the it, point of it toward well, the... Well, it's just skipping. Yeah, it's just skipping across the stone. Skipping on the on the sharpening stone. And I'm like, you're not going to get an edge like that. You're going to actually ruin it. They're just trying to get sounds. <laughs> Vicky wakes in bed and is immediately terrified. She tries to run for the door, but someone grabs her by the robe and yanks her backward. She tries the window, but it's locked. And then someone pulls her out of frame again, but we never see a glimpse of who. It's just she's getting pulled out of the shot and you never see any speck of the person. You mean... They're unseen. Yeah. Oh my god. Uh, also, I call BS that this this being is able to get through this grate. <laughs> yeah, that's yes. probably true. Yes. In the shed, a hand grabs one of the chickens and carries it to a chopping block. Vicky is dragged across the carpet by the invisible force and down into the ventilation grate in the floor. She screams as someone pulls hard on her legs to drag her down the hole, and simultaneously we see the grate tip over to slam shut on her head at the same time as the axe cleaves off the chicken's head from its body. Just to be clear, when you say invisible, it you mean off camera because Yes, or invisible, we don't know yet. Well, you but you're only seeing the top of Vicky. You're not right. seeing where whatever is dragging her but is. But the person might be invisible right now, I don't know. They, they could be, magic. but they're off camera. That yeah. that's my point. Yes. <laughs> also, I thought the grate coming down was supposed to imply like that, that she was literally decapitated. Yeah, by exactly. Yeah. I it's don't not think heavy that it enough does it, to do that. But I don't think that I. It might. Yeah, I yeah. think it is supposed to be what kills her at the very end. Okay. Least. I yeah, because I think when we see this again later, I think they might be trying to imply that her head was cut off. Okay. Instead of any Vicky aftermath, we see the headless chicken drop to the ground and flutter around, panicked and dying. Real chicken, though, right, guys? Oh right. yeah, that's a clearly real a real chicken got its head cut off in this right. movie. When was the last time we saw a chicken get its head cut off? Really? thought this would be top of your memory. I feel like I see this happen often in movies. Uh, it was in Heaven's Gate, was it? Oh. I don't remember. Really? Oh, uh, Willy Wonka? Yeah, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I don't remember a chicken getting its head cut off. It's in the tunnel. <laughs> in the tunnel with all those. Yeah. Okay, I wasn't thinking about that. I was just thinking it was a story point. No. Okay. Across town at Danish Days, Jen reports on the festival as a marching band passes her. More Oompa tunes as the parade rolls through town. Karen. Oompa Loompa tunes. I don't know. <laughs> I just Oompa Loompa tunes. That's good because we were talking about Willy Wonka before. <laughs> what do you get when you chop off a chicken's head? Karen is getting some parade float B roll and notices in the crowd that Jen's boyfriend Tony appears to have followed her here to Solvang. He sees her too and gestures and mouths to her that he is crazy and she laughs behind her camera. We cut back to the house as Virginia drops the beheaded chicken in a pot of boiling water. We can still see on the floor behind her a grate to the ventilation shaft. She clears the table from lunch to make room for dinner. 
In Solvang, Jen has learned that Tony is here, and she's furious. What is he doing here? I don't deserve this. I'm one of the good guys. I'm a nice person. Far from perfect, but I know in my heart I'm a nice person and deserve to be treated with respect. Slow down! Jen preemptively warns her sister Karen about taking Tony's side in all this, since she seems to know they're friendly. I know you think Tony's the best thing that ever happened to me, and that I'm insensitive to his feelings, but I'm asking you to let me decide what's best for me. Okay, Karen? It's not okay, but okay. Back at the house, Virginia unlocks the door to the basement off the kitchen and walks down the steps with a pot of boiled chicken. The camera stays at the top of the stairs while Virginia looks for someone in the basement. Where are you? Are you hiding from me? <laughs> well, if that's what you want to do, play your games. And right now, I think we're either thinking that she's talking to whatever pulled Vicky down the tube, or she's talking to Vicky, who she pulled down the tube. But we're not clear yet what happened. Um, I'm pretty clear. <laughs> well, you've seen the whole movie, though, Richard. I was pretty clear at the moment. Sure, but be you didn't know. No, I didn't know for certain. But I'm all. But in my head, I was like, you know what? I'm just realizing now that this whole movie is based is uh the Simpsons based on Halloween Treehouse of Horror on this episode sure, of the movie. The fish heads, is what yeah, she's going like down they, the stairs. Yeah, with. hiding in the vents. Yeah. Back in Solvang, Karen leans against their car, preparing to light a cigarette, when Tony appears to snatch it away and threaten to tell Coach that she's smoking. She offers a date with her sister if he doesn't tell, and they both laugh. I think the implication here is that they're all high school friends, or they've known each other for a really long time. Yeah, but clearly these two are very chummy. Yeah. We cut away to Jen as an older woman in full Danish costume thanks her for coming up and apologizes about the hotel mix-up. Jen notices her sister talking to Tony and greets him as nicely as she can stomach while giving us some idea as to the nature of their disagreement. Oh, hi. Beat up on any more women today? Leave the key in the mailbox, would you? Thanks. Let's go, Karen. Karen gives Tony a look before she gets in the car, but I can't tell if it's a how dare you beat up women look or an I'm so sorry she's being mean about it look. Yeah, like... Once she said that, I was like, oh, well, now I'm totally on Jennifer's right. side And here. I can't believe that Karen would even hesitate here. She wishes him luck as he approaches Jen to say more, leading me to believe that Karen is somehow siding with Tony over her sister in this domestic abuse situation. He begs her for a chance to explain himself, but Jen doesn't want to hear it and demands Karen drive her to Ernest's place. I know you told me to keep out of this, but I really think you should... Karen... This is probably the worst movie you've made in your life. He Karen. loves you! And I am fully ready for Karen to get eaten by the next floor gate. <laughs> I was so confused about this dynamic. It's, you know, I'm like... Why are you shoving this guy on this girl so much? What? Yeah, this is your sister. She was beat up by a dude and you want them to be together? I don't understand what's happening. And it only gets weirder. Yeah. I'll, I'll dig into what I think is going on and it has something to do with... 1980s values and how things were different then insanely jen actually takes karen's advice here and she sends karen back to the house but agrees to sit down to a meal with tony to talk things out when karen drives past the union hotel again the camera moves inside we float up the stairs toward the source of a slow big band song we find a cobweb covered space and Ernest, drunken almost to unconsciousness wobbling in a chair suddenly an echoey voice calls out to him Ernest, my boy 
Glad to see you. Let me look at you. The man says he wants to have a father-son chat with Ernest. Yes, sir. What's that? I can't hear you. Yes, sir. That's better. When his father asks how old he is now, Ernest says he's 29, but the actor here is nearing 60. <laughs> yeah. So I think this is our first hint that this is a replay of a conversation from a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, man, he's 29. <laughs> mileage on this guy. Dad asks if Ernest has ever considered getting married, but assumes that he is too busy for that. But then, confusingly, he says he had a chat with Virginia recently, and she couldn't stop crying. I figured she must be hiding something, but she wouldn't tell me what it was. So I had to beat it out of her. If Dad didn't expect Ernest to have time for women, then why would he be having a chat with Ernest's future wife, or feeling it was necessary to beat secrets out of her? Turns out, Virginia was crying because she was pregnant. The big question is, who would do such a thing to that poor dumb child? I figured it had to be some real low-life piece of scum. You know the first person I thought of, son? You. Turns out Virginia is Ernest's sister, and he's been raping her for years and threatening to bury her alive if she told. And now she's pregnant with Ernest's child. Tell me, son. Did it feel good taking your own sister? Do you really want to hear the answer to that question as her <laughs> father? Father says they'll have to send Virginia to an abortionist, but as for Ernest's punishment, he is instructed somewhat vaguely to pull down his pants. Ernest refuses, and the conversation replay kind of goes off the rails, as Ernest sits still in the dusty room, but his father responds as if the two men were struggling against each other. I don't think it was unclear what he was implying. Yeah. I don't think it was unclear at all. He said, we're going to make sure that like you can never do this again, pull down your pants. So does that mean he's going to cut his penis yes. off? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then it it would appear that Ernest got hold of the knife that he was planning to use. Yeah. And then and stabbed it into his own throat. Yeah. We see a knife mounted on the wall, and then in a quick insert, an identical knife is jammed into the neck of the 30 years dead corpse sitting across from Ernest, implying that he murdered his own father way back then and told his sister they would pose as a married couple moving forward. A smile spreads across to Ernest's face, as the vision ends, and we cut to Karen driving back to the house and singing terribly. <laughs> Virginia climbs the stairs with blankets to load into the closet and then notices some overturned furniture in the hallway from when Vicky almost escaped the room during her attack. Virginia heads into the room and finds the floor gate is still closed on Vicky's neck. And maybe her body is right there. Maybe it fell down the chute. I don't know. I think that th this is the moment where I think this was their cheap way of pretending that she was decapitated. Okay. Like, her body is down there because they didn't want to make a fake head, but... I don't know. Yeah, because it's clunky for the body to just be hanging <laughs> down this chute. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think that that's the implication. I think the idea is that her head was left behind. Okay, that makes sense. She screams and drops to the floor horrified and then crawls to the bathroom to vomit just as Karen pulls up outside, which I think it solidifies for sure that she did not do this. Or if she did, that it's like an alternate personality situation. Virginia hears Karen coming in and then we follow Karen into the room. She walks around, including very near Vicky's head, but manages not to notice it here. She wanders back downstairs looking for Vicky, and we see that with no time to leave, Virginia had to hide in the shower. During her search, Karen finds a plate of assorted fruits in the kitchen and assumes she is welcome to them. 
but spills a hundred cherries across the kitchen floor. <laughs> yeah, it, I don't know even what was happening here or how she did this. Yeah, it was like not even on the edge of the table, but she kind of dragged it to the edge and pushed down on it to yeah. make all this stuff fall on the ground. They could have probably done like a couple takes. While collecting them back into the bowl, she leans over the kitchen floor grate and her scarf dangles down into it, long enough for someone below to get a grip and start pulling it down. Unfortunately for her, the other end of her scarf also dips through the grate, and now the person below her has a grip on both ends. When she finally notices the tightening scarf, she fights back against it for a while, but the person under the floor yanks down on both ends with enough force to smash her hard into the iron grate and knock her half unconscious. She tries, dazed, to pull away, but the scarf reels her back in and smashes her face again, but I think they just reused the first head smash shot again, so mm. they didn't have to have her do this twice. Just in time to not save her, Virginia peeks around the corner and cries over the corpse of a second guest. In a Solvang Park, Jen is struggling to get it into Tony's head that the doctors already told him his knee will never heal well enough for him to play professionally again, and he thinks it's just a matter of her not believing in him enough. They watch some kids toss a ball around in the park, and she takes his hand and says she loves him. Did I miss the part where he apologizes for hitting her? Or did she ask if he'd hit any women recently for no reason? Because we never come back to that comment. Yeah. Back at the house, things are understandably quiet. The bodies of Vicky and Karen have not moved an inch from where they died, unless they have. <laughs> Virginia is standing silently in a dark room, and her brother Ernest pops up to scare her. <laughs> He still seems drunk from his late afternoon lunch with Dad. He laughs uncontrollably at his own lame jump scare. Ernest tells her that literally nobody visited the hotel museum today. Maybe turn it back into a hotel, especially when the whole town is sold out. He asks her where the girls went and if they might be joining them for dinner. And when she doesn't answer, he asks louder and louder. The girls, Virginia. Where are they? What? What's happened? Where are they? After a lot of screaming back and forth, Virginia leaves the room and Ernest is left to discover the girls on his own. Back in Solvang, Jennifer and Tony are enjoying a candlelit dinner together at Bitto Denmark, a real location in Solvang that we will be visiting in the near future. <laughs> we overcomplicate the story here with a third reason for their breakup. Apparently Jennifer is pregnant and scheduled an abortion without telling Tony. So it seems that he's been injured and unemployable for some time and she isn't interested in giving up her career to raise his child, so she's getting an abortion, and when he found out, he hit her. As gross as it is, I feel like they added the abortion subplot because they wanted the audience to forgive him for hitting her. Yeah. I think that's the point of it. Yes, I I, I, I agree with you. But it, yeah, it does feel super tacked on. Yeah. Uh, because it also, that conversation like happens in a different location. Yeah. Um, but if the implication of the film is that Maybe he slapped her once when he found out about it. And the audience will forgive that if she had an abortion without talking to him about it. Yeah. Like, that was a rule for a long time. Like, it was okay when Michael Corleone hit his wife because it turned he found out that she had an abortion without telling him. And that was, like, the only reason that you were ever allowed to hit a woman in movies for a long time. It turns out that's not a cool thing to do no matter what. You know, it's funny. You look just like the woman who talked to me about getting married and having kids not so long ago. Or don't you remember? Someday I do want all that, but not now. She tells him that if he were working a job he was proud of, like she is now, that he'd understand not wanting to upend it for a child. He's heard enough, and he wants to take her back to Ernest's place. When we cut back to Ernest's home, he's headed downstairs into the basement 
talking to whoever Virginia was looking for with the chicken dinner earlier. He refers to the person as his little guy, and I'm starting to think Ernest was less concerned with getting his sister that abortion their father recommended. I feel like two unrelated abortion subplots are too many for one film. <laughs> Once Ernest has lured his son out in the open, we hear him swatting at his little guy with a belt. Would I do anything to hurt you? Would I? Would I? Would I? Virginia sobs, listening to the beating. Ernest tells Virginia that they might be in big trouble. I'm afraid, I'm afraid our world has been seriously threatened. There could be serious repercussions if today's unfortunate happenstance ever became known. Ernest makes it clear that their only option is to kill Jennifer as well, to keep their secrets safe. Virginia doesn't seem too excited about this plan for whatever reason. Ernest threatens Virginia that he will just let Jennifer go to the police, since he hasn't done anything wrong unless raping your underage sister is wrong, which I'm pretty sure it is. I say underage because the actors are 14 years apart in age, so when Ernest had that chat with his dad, he was 29, and Virginia would have been 15. Also, I think uh, keeping a child locked up inside of a yeah. basement would also be some kind of grounds. Yeah. If the cops come to the house, Ernest claims that Virginia will likely be sent off to an asylum, and he wonders aloud what cruel fate would await Junior, their child together, Virginia can't bear the thought and reluctantly agrees to plan A, kill Jennifer. Do you understand? Do you understand? I can't hear you. Yes. I can't hear you. Yes. I can't hear you. Yes! Aye, aye, Captain. Yeah. <laughs> But this is him mimicking what his father did to him in that earlier conversation mm -hmm. where it makes them repeat louder and louder, which also makes me think that it's possible his father molested him, which is why I said that it was vague what the drop your pants meant. Oh, no. I mean, I think the I, I think he was he, he trying to just logistically solve the problem. Well, of, he did definitely say we're going to prevent you from doing this again right. before he said drop but your you pants. could say that and then beat the kid to within an inch of his life and then say there now yeah, you're not going to do it again but the fact that then there was also a knife right, readily yes. available yep, I think yep. that that's the implication no I think that is definitely implied but I think that they left it vague on purpose for ratings reasons probably do you recall the last time we had a son character named simply Junior oh it was the last house on the left that's right Tony drops off Jennifer out front and speeds away without saying a word. Suddenly, lightning strikes and a storm has arrived. Jennifer shuffles upstairs to her room and takes a seat on the bed. We cut back to Tony speeding away down the dirt roads. But also, it's very clearly just a dark room with a car parked in it and the camera is just yeah. shaking next to it. Also, bravo for her for being able to find her way back to this place that she's only been one time right. in the dark. I was like, I couldn't do that. That's like in Home Sweet Home where the lady couldn't even find her own house when she was coming back from the grocery store. Yeah. They just got lost and had to walk around. Jennifer digs some paperwork out of her purse, and according to the note, her abortion is scheduled for Monday, January 9th, 1980. But January 9th of 1980 was a Wednesday, <laughs> which we already established when we saw her daily planner that said she'd be spending Saturday the 5th and Sunday the 6th in Solvang. This should have said Monday the 7th. She crinkles up the paper in her hands, implying that she has decided to quit her job and raise the child of her unemployed abusive boyfriend. So she hasn't even had the abortion yet. Right. Which makes the hitting even less 
acceptable. Like, less acceptable by your established rule. <laughs> yes. Of <laughs> yeah, he has I to wait. She had already done it. He I... has to wait until the doctors finish the operation, and then he could slap her. <laughs> Jesus but Christ. he found the note in her so, purse that she had a, a an appointment scheduled. Somebody has to be slapped, either a newborn baby yeah. or... Someone's going to get slapped so that I can hear them cry. After another lightning strike, she rises from the bed and we have an insert of the grate on the floor. Vicky's body is no longer stuck in the opening. Jennifer follows a loud racket to the kitchen and it appears Karen's body has also been cleaned up. She calls for Ernest and gets a response from the unlocked and open cellar door. He invites her down to speak with him. He lures her to the corner of the basement where he's using a pulley system to connect a series of cylindrical metal ducts. Jennifer asks Ernest where her friends have gone, and he says Vicky was feeling much better, and she and Karen went out for a drive to get some air. So I guess that means he moved the car, too. Otherwise, she would have seen it out front. Right. And, and I think we see it later, like, parked off in the back. Yeah. So did he ask Junior to stay hidden, or was Junior hidden just because Junior's Ernest was- terrified of him. Yeah. yeah, I think Junior hides every time he comes down. Ernest asks Jennifer if she could do him the favor of holding up the duct that he's trying to assemble while he gets a screw that fits the hole he's working with. As soon as Ernest is out of sight, Jennifer drops the duct to the floor, as she should. No reason to stand here holding this thing up the entire time. Don't go away! Right back. Jennifer moves toward the door to the basement and finds that the lights aren't working. Ernest eats an apple in the kitchen while he waits for Jennifer to realize she's locked down there, and it doesn't take very long because she's quickly banging on the door telling him it's locked. Ernest and Virginia sit in the den and stare at each other as she continues pounding on the door. She begs for one of them to open it and they ignore her pleas. Ernest sets in motion the same piano-shaped music box that seemed to hypnotize Virginia before the girls first arrived here. Jennifer tries to shove open the external exit from the basement, but it's also locked tight, and the storm outside is pouring in through it. She is drenched by the incoming rain. I feel like they just wanted Barbara Bach to be soaking wet. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, because when she first approaches it, it's completely dry. Yeah. It's not. It's like someone dumped a bucket of water over it right when mm -hmm. she stood under it. Jennifer can hear something moving around down here with her. She finds a bucket full of chicken bones and reacts with disgust. Jennifer tries to bust out of the above-ground windows to escape the basement, but they have bars over them too close together for her to escape. That's a fire hazard. Yeah. I think they installed that later. It's <laughs> aftermarket fire hazard. Just as she gives up on the window, she notices the half-buried corpses of her friend and sister, Vicky and Karen, and the pile of dirt beside the window. She rolls down the dirt hill away from them, screaming. When she falls backward onto a nearby pile of junk, a deformed boy lurches at her from underneath it. He chases her across the basement, and she rolls her ankle before crashing into a power junction box on a load-bearing column. She holds one of the cables when Junior drags her away, and when she unplugs it, the box explodes in sparks and arcs of electricity in all directions. It's very clear this will kill Junior, or someone in the movie. Yep. Definitely. <laughs> or then Junior doesn't touch it at all, and he just goes near it and freaks out for a while. <laughs> yeah, or or that there would be no power in the house, even though the, the basement lights are still fully illuminated. Yeah, something should have happened with this electric box. He punches the box back and forth, which turns the lights on and off, but again plays no part further in the film. He starts digging through his pile of junk to offer Jennifer a stuffed animal. Eventually, she accepts the small bear to appease him, but then he takes it right back. It's like, what happened? I thought we had a moment here. She looks around the basement for something to fight back with. Upstairs, Ernest prepares to abuse his sister some more, and she spits in his face. He tells her that he will teach her manners later, but it's time to clean up the basement. In the basement, 
Jennifer crouches, sobbing in a corner, and Junior sits beside her and pantomimes hugs and seizures, and I'm not sure what he's trying to communicate. He tries to kiss her, and she shoves him away. When Ernest steps down into the basement, Junior hides under another pile of junk to avoid him. I see you've met Junior. Ernest follows Jennifer with his belt in his hand as she crawls across the room, and he quickly gets it around her neck. He tries to strangle her, but at the last second, Virginia shows up to bite Ernest on the shoulder and announce to him that the killing stops here. They wrestle for a moment, and she slashes open his face with her fingernails, but when he throws her hard to the ground, Junior comes to her rescue and knocks Ernest over a desk before checking on his mother. She's either unconscious or dead, so Junior turns his sights on Ernest while Jennifer scrambles back up the stairs into the house. Junior corners Ernest and then just bear hugs him hard. Ernest finds a board with a nail in it and slams it down into Junior's skull. Virginia wakes up and sees her son collapse in pain and rushes to comfort him. When Ernest laughs at them both, she charges him, but Ernest effortlessly throws her to the ground. Junior pulls the nail and board out of his head and dies. Back upstairs, Ernest runs out the front door looking for Jennifer, and he hears chickens, and he makes a big show of looking for her. Nobody here but us chickens, huh? In the shed, he meanders around feeding the chickens and occasionally looking directly at her. They both go for the axe at the same time, but when he gets it away from her, she runs out into the rain, crawling through the mud, and he follows her with it. We see Tony's car pulling back up in front of the house, and we waste time on him noticing what's happening and making sense of it in his head. We get an insert of his knees functioning properly for a bit, but then something snaps and he falls to the ground, too far to help. Should have parked closer, Tony. Yeah. Ernest raises the axe in the air for the killing blow, but a shotgun is fired and puts a hole through his chest, and we see Virginia lowering the gun on the porch and stepping back inside. Jennifer and Tony crawl to each other in the rain. Down in the basement, Virginia cradles her son's body, and we freeze frame for a last title card. Stephen first as Junior, a.k.a. The Unseen, which was actually great because I hadn't looked at IMDb yet, so this was a fun surprise for me to see First's name here as the yeah. actor in the deformed makeup. But I, I legitimately was, like, really happy when I saw that. I was like, oh, my God, that was, that was him. Oh, <laughs> that's so fun. And then the credits roll. Uh, that's the end of The Unseen. <laughs> I... I, I... So much to talk about, really. So much to uh, dissect yeah, here. Yeah, we spend so much time with Ernest. Well, but, yeah, Sidney Lassick is the best part of this movie, really. I, I, I mean, I agree, but we spend so much time with him, and I'm, I'm, like we said at the beginning, I'm not sure why he brought the girls up here. He's a horny old man. The same reason he's fucking his sister every day. <laughs> yeah, but he doesn't really act on those things at all well he, he's I mean, not I guess, he's not 29 anymore i guess he peeked he peeked into the bathroom yeah but that was about the extent of trying to take advantage of this situation yeah. he thought the rest of it would happen organically that's why <laughs> i think he was literally planning on having like a nice dinner with them and then he was probably going to drug them all and then do whatever he wanted to do and then probably bury them in the basement or just feed them to his kid or whatever. That's what I thought the whole plan was to begin with. I thought, oh, this is going to be food for the kid. Yeah. The, for the unseen. I uh, feel like there's actually, in regards to maybe Hell Knight and some of the other horror films we've talked about recently, there's fewer plot holes here than we usually have. I feel like it's mostly straightforward story. Yeah. A guy just was hot for these three girls. He yeah. wanted to help them out. He invited them back to his house and thought that they could go the whole weekend without murdering the three of them. And they forgot their son has access to the whole house, despite locking the door to the basement. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like him being able to come out of the grate. I, I, I don't think that they should have shown that POV of Vicky looking up and seeing something standing over her. Yeah. Just or, or her 
trying to get out the door to the room. And it's like, yeah. that's too far from the grate. No, yeah. Just just have her hear a noise, stand up by the grate, and get pulled down into the grate. Right, I'd, yeah. bu- I'd buy that. I'd yeah, buy yeah, that yeah. he was able to shimmy through the grates. And but they wouldn't her. leave all these grates untended yeah. and lock the door off the kitchen if he could fit through all this stuff. But you're right. He definitely can't. Because Stephen First is a big guy already. Yeah. But he's wearing like extra layers of meat and weird head <laughs> <Meat>. shape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because when you see him... It's like, no. He looks like a giant baby, basically. Yeah. And he's wearing a diaper, obviously, too. So that's adding to it. Let's <laughs> go compare him to the to the uh, man babies in Nothing But Trouble. Sure, yes. Bobo and Little Devil. Oh, my God. <laughs> Got to bring that movie up at every opportunity. Oh, man. Because that's what this movie kind of reminded me of sure, a little yeah. bit. It's it's not as wacky, obviously. Right. We don't have the um, dick-nosed judge. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, just, uh, you know, the, the, the house is such an interesting location. Um, and we, we I don't know, like, I, I, I think th- with a different cast, it could have been really interesting. I honestly think that a remake of this would not be terrible. You just need to do more, like ha- have the reason that they get invited there to be more sinister. Yeah. Uh, and maybe they're not all three women cause it feels a little one note. Like maybe it's a guy and two girls or something like that. Um, because it just seems like, and there's parts of it too where it's like they went off to record interviews in Solvang, and one of them stayed home sick, and the other one is like talking to her brother, and it's like, what is Jennifer doing by herself? Yeah, she can't hold the camera and interview people. Like, what is what is happening logistically in the story here? I also didn't understand how she was going to get back, unless she relied on the guy she didn't want to talk to. Right, to exactly. Yeah, I mean, basically, he's committing to giving her the ride back to the house. And like Richard said, you you have to count on her knowing how to get there because they followed a guy there last time. So she might not even know the way back. Uh, what are we doing th- thumbs on this one? Uh, I, I think it's a thumbs down just because there's, there's nothing really special about it. It's it's paint by numbers horror, but uh, it doesn't do anything wrong. It's just yeah. not super interesting. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's it, Yeah, it's it's not horrible, but it's not good. So yeah. it's kind of middle of the road, but not so middle of the road that I'd recommend it to anybody. So I'm yeah. going to go thumbs down. It's better than I expected from from Barbara Bach, honestly. I thought this was going to be a much cheaper thing than it was. Uh, it's a thumbs down for me. Yeah. Uh, I. Th- it definitely could use some some tightening up. Yeah. And and I'm curious as to what these quote unquote other scares were. Because there aren't enough characters, like there couldn't, there can't be more kills. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if kill. I'm wondering if maybe the reason that we saw Karen's second face bash was the first one repeated is because maybe the second one was way more brutal, mm. or maybe there was more stuff with the kid getting beaten up, or maybe there was somebody getting electrocuted that yeah. ended up cutting out because it was too much. Um, but there's, there's all sorts of stuff that it feels like they could have done that they didn't do. I also think it's funny that Tony comes all the way back to save her and he doesn't save her. <laughs> yeah. no, I, I kind of liked that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's he's running and I was like, oh, no, your knee. Your knee. Yeah. I thought it was going to be like a power of love moment where it's like, oh, look, all I needed was the proper motivation and my knee is fixed. And it's like, no, I literally made it 10 times worse now. It's the other knee now. <laughs> um, yeah. And what are we doing letterboxed? It just reminded me of, of Hulk. Well, you know my bad knee? Now it's my good knee. It's like, but that implies that your other knee is your bad knee. Yeah, what happened to the other one? The other one was fine. It should be better than fine. Yeah. <laughs>
What are we thinking letterbox, Jess? Uh, I have it at number 89 wow. out of 118. Very close to where I have it. That's, yeah, it's pretty middle of the road. Um, it is below Honky Tonk Freeway, but above the Four Seasons. All right. Richard. Um, I have it at 108, uh, which puts it below Hell Night, but above Final Exam. All right. I have it uh, in 91, which is just under Firecracker and just above Backroads. And that's out of 118, we said? Mm-hmm. Correct. The story and direction came from Danny Steinman. Steinman was reportedly a nightmare on set, offering no direction to the cast and being generally difficult to work with. Before this, he directed High Rise, and after, he directs Savage Streets, which he took over from Hell Knight director Tom DeSimone after he quit the project. Later, he writes and directs Friday the 13th, A New Beginning. The story and writing came from Michael L. Grace. This was his first and only feature film credit. He has mostly TV work like Knott's Landing and The Love Boat. The story came from Kim Henkel. That's the story that was completely redone and started over, so it has nothing to do with the plot of this film. But Kim Henkel is horror royalty on account of writing the original 1974 Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He came back to write Eaten Alive for Toby Hooper before this, and later he actually takes over the director chair for Texas Chainsaw Massacre 4, a.k.a. The Next Generation. He also retains character credits on the many reuses of the Leatherface character. A story credit here went to Nancy Rifkin, just this, and the other story was for the other writer whose work was discarded, Michael Viner, who appears as a prison guard in The Thing with Two Heads, based on his previous work on Harry and Ringo's Night Out, starring Harry Nilsson and Ringo Starr, I'm guessing that's how he connected to the film starring Ringo's wife. Am I crazy? I thought that there was a story credit for Stan Winston. Uh, there is in the film, but I couldn't find any way that he's connected to it at all because he wasn't involved as a writer. Yeah, because I saw oh, Stan Winston. Yeah. I, I, that made me very excited for the film. Yeah, but I, I could not find any explanation for that credit beyond that it appears in the film, but it's not on IMDb. Most of Viner's credits are producerial, including 1980's Touched by Love. The music here came from Michael J. Lewis. Before this, he had scored the first of four running scareds in 1972. And just before this, he scored Folks, a.k.a. North Sea Hijack, and Sphinx. Cinematographer Roberto A. Cazada. Ironically, his best-known work is probably as the cinematographer of Quentin Tarantino's first film, My Best Friend's Birthday, an unfinished black-and-white comedy shot over three years back when Tarantino was still working at Video Archives the Manhattan Beach rental store, from which his new podcast gets its name. Editor Jonathan Braun, he's back later this season to cut Dawn of the Mummy, and more recently, a bunch of reality shows like Survivor and The Apprentice. Barbara Bach played Jennifer Fast. She was Major Anya Amasova, the titular me in The Spy Who Loved Me. Before this, she had appeared in Force 10 from Navarone and The Humanoid alongside Ega actor Richard Keel. Last year, she was Miss Bliss in Up the Academy, and earlier this season, she was Lana in Caveman with her now-husband, Ringo Starr. Sidney Lassick played Ernest Keller. He was Cheswick in Cuckoo's Nest and Mr. Fromm in Carrie. We've seen him so far as Luke Gutchell, the pet shop owner in Alligator, and an Apple Corps vendor in History of the World Part 1. Later, he shows up in Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, Shakes the Clown, Cool as Ice, and he was the crystal healer hired to cure Andy Kaufman's cancer in Man on the Moon, from the same director as Cuckoo's Nest, obviously. Right, right. Lilia Goldani played Virginia Keller. She was B in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Mary Dove in Day of the Locust, and Catherine in the 78 Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Karen Lamb played Karen Fast. 
She was Andrea in Coming Attractions, a.k.a. Loose Shoes. Douglas Barr played Tony Ross. This role was first considered for Carl Weathers. It's a hmm. weird choice, I think. So like introduce Carl Weathers, who would be the most famous person in the cast, and say that he yeah. hit the lead actress. <laughs> we saw Doug Barr last as Jim Schmidt, the dead brother from the beginning of Wes Craven's Deadly Blessing. He got killed by a tractor, I think. Ghost tractor. Lois Young played Vicki Thompson. She comes back as a nun in Newsies. So you've seen her fully naked, and then you see her as a nun. And those are her two big titles. Maida Severn played Solvang Lady. I think that's the older woman who's apologizing for the hotel mix-up. Right. She has mostly TV stuff, and this is her final film credit. Stephen First played Junior Keller. We had him as the leader of the blue team in Midnight Madness in 1980, and as Marshall in our Minnesota review of Getting Wasted. He's probably best known for his appearances on Animal House and Babylon 5, and we also saw him as Dr. Cosby in MacGyver episode Renegade. Yeah, I looked that episode up. I have no memory of it. He was like a lab technician when they were making like anthrax or okay. something like that, and a guy broke in and stole it. I think that's everything for The Unseen. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Night School, which IMDb describes like so. Who's been decapitating the innocent girls at a local night school? The police are baffled. We leave you now with a trailer for Night School. When darkness descends on the city... Something happens to the girls who attend night school. You're not walking home alone tonight, are you? After what happened? We'll be all right. Something secret. modern man has only to take a short step to wind up in the primeval jungle of his ancestors. Something forbidding. Well, we've had a few kooks in Boston in our time, but headhunters are too many. Something terrifying. Who's there? Do you struggle to find podcasts talking about movies from 1992? 
Does your family give you blank looks when you yell Topic during Olympic coverage? Topic. Has HR talked to you about your constant advice to always bet on black? If so, you might be in need of Movie Life Crisis, the number one doctor-approved treatment for a fixation on the 1990s. High-quality movie discussions made right here in the USA, available without a prescription for the first time. Ask your doctor if Movie Life Crisis is right for you. If you can't afford Movie Life Crisis, JT and Jeff may be able to help. This statement has not been evaluated by the FDA. Side effects may include vomiting, diarrhea, and laughter.